Welcome to the ISA's Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This is Dr. Tom Smiley at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory, host of this podcast series, which is brought to you by the International Society of Arboriculture and the F.A. Bartlett Tree Expert Company. Today's podcast is by Dr. Charles Cannon, who is the director of the Center for Tree Science at the Morton Arboretum. He'll be speaking on measuring a tree's pulse and its relationship to tree health. Hello everyone, and thanks for attending our presentation on measuring a tree's pulse in relation to tree health. We hope you leave today with a better understanding of the importance of sap flow in trees, the environmental and physiological factors that affect water relation in trees, and how gaining a more detailed knowledge of how it responds to climate could lead to better preventative care and management of trees, particularly in the urban environment. This work was a team effort involving folks from across the pond, across the border, the northern one at least, and from down under. So before we get into it, I'd like to introduce the team, starting with Dr. Andy Hirons. He's a senior lecturer in arboriculture and urban forestry at University Center Meyer Co. A man, he's the man who wrote the book on applied tree biology and is an expert on tree water relations. Newton Tron has brought a wealth of expertise and knowledge about measuring sap flow along with several other aspects of tree physiology to the Morton Arboretum and has remained a solid contributor during the pandemic from his home in Canada, where he's happily been stranded since March. Alec Downey contributed his endless passion and enthusiasm for creating solutions and sparking collaborations in research. Kayla McBride is an undergraduate in integrative biology at UIUC at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And she was our virtual uh, research experience for undergraduates program this past summer working on data that we are presenting today. You'll hear directly from her later. Samantha Panic is a research assistant in the Center for Tree Science and directly manages the instruments and data collection in our tree observatory platform and has many other responsibilities associated with this project. You'll also hear from her directly in a minute. And finally, Dr. Chaishan Kwa, the urban tree science leader at the Morton Arboretum, has been connecting dots and bringing together folks with great ideas for years and has been the glue holding the tree observatory together. And now I want to hand the mic over to Andy Hirons. Well, hello all, and, and thanks to Chuck for introducing the team. It's really fantastic to uh, be able to work in collaboration with you all. I'd like first to introduce some fundamental concepts relating to tree water relations and sap flow. Of course, when you look at the percentage of water within the tree and the roles it plays, it's easy to see that it's fundamental to tree function. Up to 95% of the non-wood plant parts are made up of water. Even wood can be around 50% water when it's fresh. It's important for numerous biological processes such as photosynthesis and nutrient acquisition. And it provides a substrate for biological processes uh, and is a solvent for gases, minerals and growth regulators. It's critical to cellular structure. 
I think one of the interesting things about water and trees and plants also in general, if you like, is that despite its value, only about 5% of water is taken up by the tree is, and retained in the biomass. Most is lost back to the sky. In a sense, it's a highly profligate process then, isn't it? But one which is remarkable because all that water uptake the tree goes through doesn't need to expend any metabolic energy to get it from the roots right up to the leaves that's potentially well over 100 meters away. Whilst there remain some controversies in the academic community, the overwhelming majority of plant scientists accept what is known as the cohesion tension theory. The origins of this theory actually go back a long way to 1727, when Stephen Hales wrote, for though it is plain by many experiments that the sap enters the sap vessels of plants with much vigor and is probably carried up to great heights in those vessels, by the vigorous undulations of the sun's warmth. Well, it's, it's a really good start, the vigorous undulations of the sun's warmth. Uh, but the next clause goes on to say about vibrations in the vessels, which is, is not quite correct. What we now understand as cohesion tension theory is generally attributed to Dixon Jolly and their seminal paper on the ascent of sap in 1895. So the cohesion tension theory essentially states that water or sap more precisely moves down a gradient in water potential. So from a high or less negative to a low, more negative water potential. Water potential itself is made up of a number of components. The, the most important in the tree are turgor potential, osmotic potential and gravitational potential. And in soils, something known as the matrix potential is also important. Today, I don't want to get too bogged down by the nitty gritty of how those water potentials are calculated. You'll see that I put a few options for further reading on the slide. But if you look at the schematic on the right, you can see that the soil has a higher water potential than the root. So approximately minus 0.3 megapascals, for, for example. The root is higher than the, the soil, sorry, the root is higher than the trunk, the trunk than the leaf and the leaf from the air. So this gradient drives the uptake of water from the soil and the transport of water through the tree and into the atmosphere, thus initiating sap flow. Interestingly, it's the physical limits of trees and their ability to withstand such high negative pressure that limits the overall height of trees. And, and that's a really important idea that this negative pressure um, is limiting uh, to the overall heights of trees. When we think about the soil then, the availability of the water from the soil is governed by the soil water potential then. Basically, the tree needs to be able to generate a water potential that is more negative than the soil water potential if it's to extract water from the soil. However, there will become a point, and in temperate trees, it tends to be between minus two and minus four megapascals, when the tree reaches its permanent wilting point or the turgor loss point, when it can no longer extract water from the soil. 
the soil just essentially is holding on to the water too tightly at that point. And when this point's reached in relation to the percentage soil water content, depends a great deal on, on the texture of the soil. So for example, it might be between 10 and 15% water content in a loam, but less than 5% in a sandy soil. So for this reason, it's never really a good idea to rely on the soil water content if you're looking to evaluate the effect of soil moisture on the drought response. Trees experience soil water potential and not soil water content. Of course, the nature of this, what we call the soil water release curve, also informs how much water is available to the tree within any given volume of soil. In the right hand figure, you can see that the water, the available water, the difference between field capacity and the permanent wilting point is only about 7% in a soil, but can, in, in, a, in a sort of um, some soils, in a sandy soil, but can be over 20% in the loam. So it's important to remember that the properties of the soil have a huge impact on the availability of water to the tree. Well, in addition to responding to the soil water status, the tree inevitably has to respond to the atmospheric demand for water as well. And this is mostly driven by two variables, air temperature and relative humidity. This data comes from Northwest England, so the temperatures in May probably look a little disappointing to many of you, but I can assure you this was actually uh, a really nice spring month for us. We even got over 20 degrees Celsius, that's 68 Fahrenheit for those of you that don't deal in Celsius. The vertical gray bars um, shading uh, represents the nighttime. So you can see that the temperature and relative humidity tend to mirror each other. With temperature going up during the day and relative humidity decreasing during the day and vice versa at night. When it comes to measuring atmospheric demand for water though, we tend to integrate these two variables into something called the vapor pressure deficit. And on the top panel there, you can see this vapor pressure deficit, the integration of temperature and relative humidity. And as you might expect, it increases during the day and goes down at night. Quite often uh, to more or less zero, but not always, to, depending if the nights uh, are warm. Now, when I was first exploring this field, I could never understand why we talk about water potential in the soil and the plant, but then switch to VPD in the air. And to be honest, I, I think the basic reason is that it's much trickier to work out the water potential of the air because uh, it has something called the molar volume of water and that changes with temperature. I won't bore you with the details, but if we assume that the air temperature is a constant 20 degrees, then I plotted the water potential of the air for the month that we're looking at. So you can say, that the temperature uh, really only represents a quite a small error in these calculations. The point really is just to show you that the water potential of the air is always way more negative than that of the plant or the soil. It regularly look, gets down to below minus 100 megapascals. You can see that during periods of rainfall, the water potential of the air is much higher, something around minus 25 megapascals and the corresponding VPD is much lower. 
all in all, I hope that you can see that there's very a very good mirror-like relationship between VPD and the water potential of the air. Since VPD is much more easily calculated, we tend to present the drying force of the air as VPD rather than water potential. Here, the upper panel is VPD for the period we've been looking at, and the lower panel is sap velocity of a, a particular cherry, Prunus macchiae. And look how closely the drying force of the air matches up with the sap velocity in the tree. In periods of high relative humidity, cool temperatures and rain, the sap flow is suppressed. And in dry periods with relative uh, low relative humidity, the sap flow reaches its maximum level. I hope that you can see that the sap flow is a really powerful tool for monitoring a tree and its function in response to the environment. With data being able to collect being collected something like every 10 minutes, you get near continuous data sets and it's sensitive to the edaphic as well as the atmospheric conditions. It integrates the root system and the crown. So it's really powerful from that point of view. Well, in these next few slides, the data from the forestry plot at the uh, Morton Arboretum, uh, Samantha's gonna talk to you much more about this shortly. But I just wanted to show you how sap flow can represent the period of leaf expansion as well. You can see this Platinus occidentalis essentially expanding its leaves during June. So that gradual increase in sap flow as the crown and the leaves expand. Data like that's probably easier. Um, visualized as mean daily values. And so with the exception of some very low VPD days, you can see this steady rise, can't you, in sap flow throughout the month of June. And if we just focus in on a kind of region of interest, if you like, uh, that shows, well, here I've just picked a few days that are, are quite diverse. We can see that how, how rain events can suppress the sap flow in trees, either in the middle of the day, like on, on the 16th and the 21st of July, or they delay uh, sap flow altogether, where we obviously had a very wet morning on the, the 18th of July. You can see that, that that rain period really delayed sap flow till pretty much halfway through the day when it, it then started flowing again. So uh, it's quite sensitive and you can pick up quite a lot of signals through understanding the sap flow. You can see uh, on good sunny days, a sort of bookending this particular period, so the beginning and the end of this particular period, you can see that the sap flow rises very steeply in the morning, plateaus during the day, and then declines very sharply in the evening. I'm gonna hand over um, to Chuck now, but I'm gonna uh, speak more about sap flow and how it can be useful to to us a bit later. But but now let's let's hand back over to Chuck. Need to unmute myself <laughs> and start my video. Um, 
somebody needs to start my video, I guess uh, I'll go ahead and start talking. Uh, thanks a lot, Andy, for that great exploration of the factors that affect sap flow in trees. Um, now, tree ecophysiology is not really my scientific specialty, uh, but I see the topic as very central to our ability to help trees adapt to challenging urban environments and in selecting the right tree for the right place. And so in 2016, I actually attended the ninth International Symposium on Sap Flow uh, held at Cal State Fullerton, and that was organized by Dr. Jochen Schenk. Uh, I was really looking forward to catching up on all the latest ideas and technology that people are using to measure this important uh, physiological factor. But during the symposium, uh, Jochen introduced the idea of sap flow being a river to the sky. Um, and I was profoundly struck by the beauty and the power of that analogy. Um, and there's a great deal of truth to it as well. As Andy mentioned, uh, transpiration, most of the water just passes through the tree and transpiration, the loss of water vapor through the leaves of plants in the, into the atmosphere is a major component of the Earth's water cycle. And it comprises the majority of the terrestrial eco, uh, e, uh, evapotranspiration that occurs on a global scale. So truly, a sap flow in our forests, both natural and urban forests, form a river to the sky that's equivalent in volume to the actual rivers flowing to the ocean. And I think this very clearly uh, highlights the overwhelming importance of plants and their water relations to the uh, global climate and distribution of pre precipitation and atmospheric humidity in general. So on the next slide, I wanna to return to the idea of sap flow being a tree's pulse and dig into some of the details of what that means. Uh, this is pretty much the same slide that Andy was just talking about. So he was talking about those factors that affect it. Uh, and of course, solar radiation is one of those things, you know, night and day uh, are a very important part of the cycle. And so a tree's pulse only happens once a day in, in comparison to what happens in humans. So our heart beats very rapidly throughout the day, but the tree pulse is a singular event through the day and it responds very dynamically to what is going on in the environment, whether it's raining, uh, whether it's cloudy and all of those kinds of things. And so, and there are different parts of that cycle that we can begin to pay attention to and try to learn about. And you can notice even during the nighttime, how far down the sap flow, uh, how much it declines really also responds to some extent. So on some days, on those bright sunny days, you see it doesn't quite go down as much, but on the wet days, it really goes down to zero. So there is some kind of hydration that the plant is still trying to achieve even during the night uh, on some sunny days. So there are different parts of the cycle that we can pay attention to and learn different things about uh, what's going on. Um, so this responsiveness is quite remarkable considering the relative simplicity of the anatomy. So I wanna think about on the next slide, kind of how we interpret these dynamics uh, in humans and look briefly at what we think about uh, when we look at human health. So when you go into the doctor's office for your checkup, uh, the nurse will take your heart rate and your blood pressure as a very first step. And this information provides the physician with a, a quick snapshot of your basic health and can then can look at your medical history and can make a judgment about your overall health condition and whether you need treatment or whether you need further studies. So each person has a unique combination of heart rate and blood pressure. And this, but the cycle of the heart really remains the same for everyone. So we can look at that, those phases of the heartbeat. Uh, for, for example, if there were some irregularity that the doctor detected, he can, she can send you in to look at your EKG and look at these phases in, in more detail and try to interpret you know, what is going on uh, if you're having some kind of arrhythmia or some issue with your heart, beat, heart rate. 
So we would like to get to this point. And this, this level of knowledge, this level of understanding is built upon decades, centuries of detailed uh, measurements of a large number of people in the population. So we need to build up this kind of understanding of trees as well. So a, a tree's pulse is really fundamental uh, uh, to its health. And so we need to adopt a similar approach to ex trying to understand it. So looking at the responsiveness of that sap flow to environmental change, the volume of water conducted over a period of time and how that changes even through the year. So we need to kind of understand how a tree progresses through its different stages of, of maturity and, and growth. So that can give, give us a nice insight into the overall health of a tree and can be a basic tool for detecting and diagnosing the problems a tree might be having when before they manifest themselves as like kind of half dead crowns or major dieback is how we often de determine that a tree is declining now. So in the next slide, uh, we need to understand the basic anatomy of a tree just to kind of as a review to gain some insight into sap flow. And first I want to just point out the remarkable fact that a tree conducts gallons of water every day up into the leaves uh, that it can be tens of meters above the ground against gravity without using any muscles or any kind of pumping action. You know, as Andy pointed out, the kind of the first suspicions about how this happened, they really thought there had to be some kind of, you know, agent, there had to be some kind of active process that this is occurring through. But it's really just simply through those gradients uh, from soil to atmosphere that create this flow. And so this flow is actually occurring through dead tissue, the xylem. And that's constructed by the tree each year in a careful balance between above and below ground environmental conditions. To me, the trees are simply the most remarkable living organisms. They link the soil to the sky. They really do integrate those different environmental conditions in a way that's very specific to that location. So as I said about human heart rate and blood pressure, each tree is a different individual and it's adapted to those particular soil conditions, light availability, and all those things change through time, particularly given the lifespan of a mature tree, which can be centuries. And so I really can get pretty excited about this because I think it's a truly beautiful example of how evolution produced this elegant, very robust engineering solution over hundreds of millions of years to a very fundamental problem of conducting water from the ground up to the leaves where they can be, uh, gain solar radiation and conduct uh, photosynthesis. So I'm sure we all know these basic facts that I'm talking about, but it's really nice to review them again. So the stem of a tree, has only a thin layer of living tissue just under the bark. And it's really kind of the sandwich between two types of cambium. There's the cork cambium, which is on the outside that produces the outer bark. Then you have the vascular cambium on the inside. And in between that is the phloem. And so the cambial layer can be thought of as, as a stem cell, if you kind of think in kind of anthropomorphic terms or zoological terms, because they're really the cells that are pluripotent and they can really mature into any kind of tissue. So that's why you have, you know, different kinds of uh, tissue emerging from this layer that's just under the bark. So the xylem is formed on the inside of the cambium and the tissue begins to die as it reaches maturity and begins to perform its function. So in this xylem collectively becomes wood. Most of the sap flow occurs in the newest xylem and the outer portions of the wood are often termed sap wood. And we won't get into the details of wood anatomy, but there are, it is a simple system, but there are many different kinds of tissue that are mixed in here. and it, different types of structures and different species, but this illustration basically captures the, the basic idea. So one thing to note is that the system is largely unidirectional with most of the water traveling up and out into the atmosphere and only a small portion is returned down through the phloem, but that's a very different process. 
And so just for clarity's sake, as we are talking about sat flow, we are focusing entirely on the xylem and we're not even thinking about phloem. That's a whole nother issue that we should be studying in more detail as well. So on the next slide, in looking at xylem, there are also different kinds of anatomies. And here I'm showing you three very clear examples of the major types of hardwood or angiosperm uh, wood. So just by looking at these cross sections, you can tell that sap flow must be very different in these different arrangements of xylem tissue. As I said, there are clear, these are very clear examples of the differences uh, from the ring porous, where you have very large vessel elements in the early season growth, to, to semi-ring porous, where they're scattered, more scattered and not such clear differentiation between the early and the late growth. And then you have the diffuse porous where they're just kind of evenly scattered. So uh, you can imagine there are different species that are kind of intermediate between these major types and the arrangement of vessel elements and tracheids can vary among the major groups. And then you have softwood and gymnosperm species that only have tracheids, which are the kind of primitive form of xylem. And their anatomy is somewhat more simple than uh, angiosperms. So I just wanted to point out these details to emphasize that while we're discussing tree sap flow in a general sense, there's a lot of complexity underlying this process in each individual species, just as an individual oak tree differs from other oak trees, the oak species are different from maple species. And so we'll need to develop a database for each one of these in a sense. And so there's no real easy solution rather than just gathering a lot of data uh, through long periods of time. So on the next slide, the point I'm trying to get across is that the anatomy and physiology of a tree is largely a mechanistic one directional flow system with a variable water source on one end and these kind of finely tuned valves or the stomata in the leaves on the other end. And we have worked out a lot of the math. I mean, so we've agreed upon the basic principles that are driving the system. So we should be able to create a predictive model for how much sap flow will occur given a particular tree species in a particular setting, given a particular set of environmental conditions. And this conduit between the uptake in the roots and the release in the leaves, it must be sealed and it must be continuous so that the water column remains unbroken. So we simply need to gather a lot of sap flow data from many different tree species in different environments to plug in and, and work out those detailed parameters so that we can make those predictions. And so once we have that kind of robust predictive system of how a tree should be performing, we can understand that when it's not performing as predicted, we can then begin to try to look for various physiological or health factors that might be causing this tree to perform differently than we might expect. And so now we're finally going to start to get into some data and stop lecturing at you on kind of things you might already know, but it's good to get a refresher. But I'm going to hand it over now to Sam Panic, who will uh, introduce the project and data that we'll be discussing later uh, today from the Morton Arboretum. Thank you, Chuck. I will give a brief background on two projects at the Morton Arboretum, the Forestry Plot Project and the Tree Observatory Project or Platform. So to start, the Morton Arboretum in Lyle, Illinois, USA is 1,700 acres of beautiful land from natural regenerating forests to specially planted collections. It is the perfect place to study trees. One of the earliest aims of the Morton Arboretum was to study timber tree, trees for reforestation purposes. Planted in the late 1920s, some of the early timber and forest restoration 
uh, monoculture trials still exist in our collections. Scientists in the Center for Tree Science launched a long-term and multidisciplinary study of these mature monocultures, and that is what we are calling the Forestry Plot Project, to understand how they both adapt to and transform the site where they were planted. There are monoculture plots of oak, Norway spruce, tulip poplar, Chinese juniper, American sycamore, and more. Uh, we are going to limit our data discussion today on the American sycamores. Can we advance one more slide? There we go. A sister study to the forestry plot project is the tree observatory project. The tree observatory project studies the same species of trees that are in the forestry plot project, but on an individual basis. In other words, these trees are individual open grown trees in the Morton Arboretum collections. They are not in a forest and they are not influenced by any neighboring trees or plants. The species in the tree observatory project are Buckley Oak, Norway Spruce, Chinese Juniper, Tulip Poplar, and of course the American Sycamore uh, that we're gonna explore data in later. The main goals of this sister study, this tree observatory project or platform is to one, simultaneously collect numerous streams of data from many parts of a plant over many years to create an integrated baseline for physiological, structural, and behavioral responses to environmental conditions, to rapidly changing environmental conditions. Second goal of this study is to create a platform for testing, inventing, and comparing emergent technologies, methodologies, and sensors to gather this data in, in an efficient and autonomous ways, particularly in collaboration with engineers. Third goal is to identify the most effective data collection methods that can be cheaply or affordably and effectively spread much more widely on many trees in many locations. And the last goal is to compare tree functions, processes, and adaptations of open grown trees, like urban trees, like the ones we're seeing in the tree observatory project, to trees in a natural forest, like the trees in the forestry plot project. We currently have each tree observatory tree instrumented and monitored using sap flow sensors for water dynamics, dendrometers for trunk expansion and contraction, several hobo sensors for canopy climate data, several mini rhizotron tube installations to capture root growth, collections of soil cores to analyze soil quality, several tree cores to analyze age and growth history of a tree, we have drone footage for 3D modeling, and we have several leaf litter baskets deployed to analyze carbon and nitrogen relationships. The forestry plot trees are monitored in a very similar, if not exact same manner. Ideally, we want to expand the tree observatory project, not only on the arboretum grounds, but across arboreta and gardens around the country and around the world. At the Morton Arboretum, we want to add replicates of each tree species to the tree observatory project. And then we want to expand the study to different climates and environments around the world. 
just go back to this previous slide for just a second. There we go. So like I previously mentioned, the fourth goal of the tree observatory project is to compare tree functions, processes, and adaptations of open grown trees, uh, like the ones in the tree observatory project, to trees in a forestry setting, like the forestry plot project trees. We are very interested in comparing the growth and health of open grown trees with trees growing in closed canopy forests. We often talk of the urban forest and a growing body of work demonstrates that trees compete, communicate, and facilitate one another in forests. The open grown tree can act as a control for our understanding of how the dynamics and benefits of a forest emerge. We have matched up a small number of tree observatory trees with the same species in the forestry plots for long-term comparisons of trees growing in these two major environmental settings. This slide illustrates just the physical observational differences between an open grown tree and a forestry plot tree. There are clearly some different interactions and processes happening even within the same species that affect how they grow, adapt and survive. We will now hear from Caitlin McBride as we take a deeper look into one of the major ways that we monitor and compare our trees in these projects, which is measuring sap flow. All right, thank you, Sam. So before we get into the data too much, I wanted to give you a little bit more information about the technological side of our measurements. So in order to measure the sap flow for the tree observatory plot and tree observatory data, we installed SFM1 sap flow monitors and these automatically took readings every 10 minutes. The sap flow monitor consists of three probes inserted directly into the sapwood of the tree. The probe in the middle is the heater. The probe above the heater is the downstream temperature probe, and the probe below the heater is the upstream temperature probe. The temperature probes are named according to the direction of sap flow in the xylem. The temperature probes each contain an inner sensor, which is located closer to the heartwood, and an outer sensor, which is located closer to the bark. These allow us to measure the sap velocity at different xylem depths. In order to take a sap velocity reading, the monitor will take the ratio of the temperature increase at the upstream and the downstream probes. This is the origin of the name of the heat ratio method. So the first step of a sap velocity reading involves taking the average temperature at both the upstream and the downstream probes over the course of 80 seconds. Then the heater emits a heat pulse of known energy. After approximately one minute, the sap flow monitor takes the average temperatures for the upstream and the downstream probes again. The heat ratio is calculated using this temperature increase. For example, if there is no sap movement at the time of the reading, the heat pulse should reach the downstream and the upstream probes at roughly the same time, resulting in a ratio of temperature increase of approximately one to one. However, if there is a large amount of sap flow, like during the middle of a sunny day when the rate of transpiration is high, the heat pulse will reach the downstream probe well before the upstream probe. This will result in a large downstream to upstream heat ratio, which allows us to see that there's a large amount of sap movement happening. If there is a small amount of sap flow, such as very early in the morning, the heat pulse will still reach the downstream probe before the upstream probe, but the ratio will be closer to one to one. By measuring the heat ratio, we can gain a precise measure of sap movement as it changes throughout the day and the growing season as a whole. 
it's important to remember that the sap flow monitor only measures the sap velocity at one point in the stem, but the values it records are very precise. This precision allows us to use a number of correction factors in order to develop an accurate estimation of tree level sap flow and overall transpiration for our sycamores. So with that, I'll hand you back to Chuck to talk about our data a little bit more. Great, thanks a lot, Caitlin. Thanks a lot, Sam. Um, now that you have the kind of context of where this data is coming from, I just wanna show you a few examples uh, of the kinds of things we're seeing. Again, this is a long-term study. We're building up lots of data surrounding these uh, different plots and trees, but this shows you two different trees at different points in the season. And I think this is kind of interesting idea because the, the day length changes right through the growing season. But we can see the, the solid lines are showing one tree that's tree five or T5 there. And then the, the dot, the thinner line with the dots is another tree. And the different colors represent the different seasons. So the July is the reddish line, the August uh, period is the green line, and then the later September period is the blue line. So you can see even though July uh, is the longest day and it might be the hottest part of the year, the sap flow is actually lower in both of these trees during that period of time than it is later in the season. And you can even see in September, both of the trees get started quite rapidly after sunrise. And so it's kind of later in the season, the tree is really primed and it's, and it's really functioning. And maybe during those uh, summer months, uh, the heat stress might be uh, a little bit more severe. So there are interesting seasonal changes in these uh, trees as they uh, respond to the environment. So the, the responses are not consistent throughout the season. We actually need to know what time of year, what phase of the phenology is the tree to really understand where the sap flow should be. So this is just an illustration of how kind of complicated uh, these dynamics can be. So on the next slide, just wanna show you the synchronization. So you already saw a slide like this, the same time, the same time period that Andy showed uh, for one tree, but wanted to show you the synchronization among all of these trees and how they all do react very dynamically and in a very similar way to those same events. So you can see that as uh, Andy described it, kind of bookend by sunny days with full sun, but then there are a few rainy days uh, in here in the middle uh, on, the, on the, the second day, there's quite a lot of rain. And then the July 22nd, the July 21st day, there's rain in the middle of the day. And you can see they all responded very quickly and very uh, similarly to these environmental events. And there's some kind of interesting differences. You can see that each individual tree is slightly different in kind of the shape of its curve. Uh, and you can see the pink line is the tree observatory tree. And so the pink line at the bottom there is the tree that's open grown. And so you can see the shape of that curve is actually quite different than the trees that are growing in the forestry plots. And we probably think this is due to the fact that, you know, it, because it's standing out in the open, the sun rises, it gets hit immediately by full sun and that continues through the whole day. And so you, you, it reaches a maximum very quickly and then kind of continues at that sap flow level and then drops off. While the ones that are in the forestry plots are shaded. And so they reach their maximum later on in the day when the sun gets more overhead, more directly overhead, there's less shading from their neighbors. And so it takes them longer to really reach that maximum and they stay at that maximum a shorter period of time. 
So in some ways, you could imagine the open grown tree, it could be more stressed if the soil water potential is low, the soil, uh, the soil water availability is low, uh, that tree could become quite stressed because it actually doesn't kind of have this buffering of shading of its neighbors. Uh, so this is just a, a simple uh, demonstration of both the synchronization, how the trees all do respond uh, to these major events in a very similar fashion, but they all each have little idiosyncrasies uh, depending on exactly where they're growing, how much they're shaded by their neighbors and so forth. And the lower magnitude of the, of the tree observatory tree or that pink line is a little bit, uh, we're not quite sure exactly why that is, but I can talk about it on the next slide where we're showing you, this is the, the open grown tree or that pink line over two seasons. So this is in 2018, in 2019, this is the daily water use uh, for that one tree. And you can see in 2018, or those dark colored bars, um, it was moving a lot of water every day. And so the average uh, water use was uh, over a liter every time and pretty much, and then drops off. And then the next summer, you can see it's, it's depressed and there's, it's actually never reaches the same potential, never reaches the same level of of water use that it did in 2018. And during the spring of 2019, it was very cool and wet. And actually there was a very bad anthracnose outbreak, uh, particularly in these open grown trees. And we think this with slowness of response, you can see it doesn't really kick off as soon in the year. It's not even until kind of mid July that it really gets going. So it had to replace all of that tissue that it lost to the anthracnose outbreak and then it never really reached that same potential. And you can see as well on the, the lower graph in the daily stem growth, it grew a lot during that 2018 season, uh, you know, well over 30 millimeters in size over that season. But in the next season, it didn't even grow 20 millimeters. Uh, so that anthracnose outbreak had a huge impact on this tree. And we do think they, the open grown trees seem to experience that worse than the forestry plot trees. And so perhaps that affected the magnitude. There could be some wounding impact as well. So as Caitlin described the, the technique that we measure the sap flow in these trees, there is a kind of uh, impact of the, the tree uh, recovering from those probes being stuck in. And so kind of it changes the, the measurements and the, and the accuracy of those measurements a little bit and can decline the, the measured magnitude of sap flow. So there are lots of things to keep abreast of and keep on top of as you're, as you're taking these measurements as well. So this is just kind of a, a quick uh, snapshot into some of this data. We'll be presenting these data in the coming years in much more detail and kind of more full analysis, but we're just now getting enough data we can begin to understand and interpret them as they go. And one kind of thing I wanted to point out too, I mean, can, someone who's worked a lot in the tropics, the period of time in which these trees can grow is relatively short as well. The number of months these trees are actually very actively growing and have sap flow is relatively small compared to the entire year. And so it's pretty amazing that these trees can grow so much and become so large in these uh, climates where the, the growing season is relatively short. So I'm gonna now go back to Andy and he's gonna talk about his research. Thanks, Chuck. Yeah, that was really uh, interesting to hear about um, those thoughts. So uh, it was great to hear about the, the long-term monitoring of um, 
forestry plots. Now I'd like to share with you some work that uses sap flow to understand the effect of waterlogging on trees uh, over a much sort of shorter time frame. And this work was funded by the Highland R. Johns grant from the Tree Fund. There were two key hypotheses I was exploring really. Firstly, that waterlogging will reduce sap flow in trees. And secondly, that the extent of the decline will be related to the tolerance of the species to waterlogging. I had a, a basic fields uh, trial set up where I installed a small containerized nursery and uh, you know had a series of rows of trees with a range of different species on them. And then I just really set up some waterlogging cycles so where I, I, I subjected the containerized trees to waterlogging and then a recovery phase where I drained those waterlogged trees and monitored their response. And I was really just looking at two key variables, sap flow, as we've been discussing, using exactly the same technique, the SFM1 uh, sap flow meters, and then gas exchange. So this is Prunus macchiae. It's a sensitive species. It shows uh, in the pretreatment phase, you can see rather synchronous uh, sap flow between the species. And then quite quickly, as we enter this waterlogging phase, you see the departure of the waterlogged tree, that dotted line from the control tree. And I should notice that continued through the waterlogging cycle, even at the end uh, of that waterlogging period, there were no visible symptoms of decline within the crown. They looked exactly the same, the two treatments. And even actually when the the, the trees were drained, we didn't really pick up any major recovery in the sap flow at all in those waterlogged trees. And this is just that uh, same sap flow trace on the top plot, but you can see the photosynthesis and the uh, stomatal conductance data on, the, on the, the middle and lower plots there. And you can see that, you know, that early stage in the in the waterlogging cycle that we picked up the departure of the waterlogged trees from the control trees in the sap flow trace, we can also see a really highly significant reduction in both of those two uh, key gas exchange variables. If we take azoplatinoides then, this is the same, the same setup. So again, pretreatment was pretty consistent. When those trees were waterlogged, we saw the control treatment, uh, you know, continuing to doing its thing and the waterlogged trees really declining very, very rapidly. And interestingly, in this species, when we drained the uh, containers, we actually continued to see a decline in the sap flow response in, in that previously waterlogged uh, set of trees. And just say we've got n equals uh, six. So actually what happened was over the course of that um, so-called recovery cycle was that the tree totally lost its leaves and it's just the Samaras were left on the, on the, on the uh, tree there. So uh, that was really a very, very significant response. And so not only did we see to have, seem to have this effect of the water logging, but also what we might 
probably call a, a post-anoxic stress. So where we have perhaps some toxins released by the reoxygenation of the root system uh, that ultimately led to the, uh, well, the, the uh, total abscission of the, of the crown. And you can see, of course, all of that uh, picked up in the, in the sap flow signal. So the very minor amounts of sap flow a couple of weeks into the drain cycle are probably just going, the sap flow just going through the samaras and, and the shoots but without any leaves. And of course, well, we could measure photosynthesis in the first sort of stage of that um, stress recovery cycle, but obviously when the leaves were lost, uh, we, we lost those gas exchange values as well. But um, I think you get the impression that, yeah, a very substantive response to waterlogging there in, in the Ace of Platinoides, the Norway maple. Okay, so this is a, a Salix alba, a white willow, and this is a tolerant species. The data looks a little bit noisy. It was really quite a sort of rainy period, you know, typical summer, summer in Northwest England. And you can see the, the waterlogged uh, phase has begun there. And actually there's no discernible difference in the sap flow whatsoever between the, the waterlogged and the con control uh, set of trees. So obviously I was really excited by this because it seemed that we were able to distinguish these quite profound differences in species response using the sap flow signal and then just validating that response, if you like, with the gas exchange. So again, here we, we see that, that sap flow trace with the, with the gas exchange. And you can see that although actually we were able to pick up some highly significant differences in the photosynthesis and the stomatal conductance uh, at peak stress, so after seven days of waterlogging in this case, um, within that first week of, of it being drained, the, the, there was a, a return to control values of, of, of uh, gas exchange. And so that the recovery was much, much better, even though uh, we, we were able to pick up some differences at the peak stress. Of course, in willows, one of the things that they can do is create these hypertrophied lenticels. And you can see around the base then of the, the stem, just underneath the water, you get these hyper, hypertrophied lenticels or enlarged lenticels that were apparent on the waterlogged trees and not so on the control trees. And that's really just an anatomical or morphoanatomical response to the waterlogging that enables you know, a much more effective ventilation of the root system. So the conclusions from, from that sort of first phase of the waterlogging sap flow response trial was that, uh, yeah, we, can, we seem to be able to use sap flow as a tool to evaluate uh, waterlogging tolerance. There seem to be, a, a, well, at least three, possibly more responses to, um, to sap flow um, or of, of waterlogging to sap flow. The first is no response, as we saw in, in, the, in the willow, uh, and that's you know, un, unsurprising in some senses, but it's nice, nice to see that we don't get a substantive response in, in something that's known to be a, a very flood tolerant species. We can see a decline throughout the waterlogging period, and then, if you like, 
stabilization upon draining and I don't know actually how long it would have taken for, for those trees to recover, perhaps within the growing season, perhaps it might have taken multiple years for that to cover to recover. And that's the, the value of having long-term data sets like they're doing at the Morton Arboretum, where you have those stress cycles and then you can follow them through and see uh, how, how long it takes for them to cover to uh, recover up to pre-stress pre values. But, uh, and then the, th the third, the third, um, of response I, I picked out was this decline during a waterlogging period and then a continued decline if you like through the draining period as we saw in the Millway maple there. So alongside sap flow of course photosynthesis and stomata conductance are very sensitive to waterlogging uh, and I think a really important take-home message for us arborists that might look at trees um, visually for much of the time rather than analyze, analyzing them physiologically is that visual analysis is actually pretty useless for identifying physiological stress. Okay, I think I'm going to hand back over to Chuck to uh, take us to the end of the presentation. Thanks, Chuck. And I'm muted. So yeah, here we go. <laughs> I've heard that's like one of the most common things said these days in the Zoom environment is like, you're muted. <laughs> So yeah, thanks a lot, Andy. That's a really good uh, wrap of an experimental data that indicates the kind of short-term cycles. You can detect that a tree is declining uh, from the sap flow uh, even before it becomes visible uh, physiologically and you know, decline in the leaves or in the crown. Um, so we've been looking at kind of thinking about sap flow as a health indicator and how we might be able to use this uh, in a more applied sense. And so I really kind of want to end up the presentation kind of thinking about how to build tools to measure this fundamental aspect of tree physiology cheaply so we can gather lar large amounts of data on a large number of trees across a wide range of species and conditions. And so one thing that we've been doing in Morton Arboretum is working with engineering teams of students and faculty at several universities around the Chicago region to try and solve some of these problems. Uh, we already know how to measure sap flow, and we have high-quality automated solar-powered sensors that exist from the ICT International, the SF1 sensors. But they are pricey. They take, you know, uh, a certain amount of expertise to use. And so we've been challenging uh, senior capstone students in various engineering uh, programs around the region, like at Northwestern University, to design and build a sort of tree Fitbit for arborists and homeowners. Okay, one team actually made quite a bit of progress and they gave themselves a rather inappropriate name, I think, of Team Amateur Hour. I think they were just being funny about it, but I think they really did a great job of developing a kind of a vision for an end-to-end -end design from the hardware to the mobile app, kind of interacting with the homeowner or the arborist. And they did a really impressive job of thinking through the whole process, how the Fitbit would function, what benefits you provide to the users. And this included the idea of having a, a health index that was based upon this predictive idea that sap flow should be largely responsive and depend upon both the species and the environmental conditions. And I really think there's a lot of potential there to, uh, to explore. And uh, in the next slide, uh, this is kind of a, a schematic that they developed for the decision process of determining whether the homeowner should seek expert advice or not, depending on how their tree is performing. So imagine you had one of these uh, Fitbits on your tree 
uh, you dial in the species and the size and whether it's in a favorable spot, how much sun it's getting. And then you accumulate a baseline uh, sap flow data for that tree in that spot. And then perhaps the tree is next to a construction site and the homeowner wants to know whether or not that work is affecting that tree or perhaps damaging the roots of their, you know, their beloved tree. And so you could put that Fitbit on there you know, before this construction starts and then monitor it through the process and then provide kind of this immediate direct evidence about whether there's any kind of damage being done, even perhaps before you know, it's extensive. Maybe you could detect small amounts of, of, of damage and stop the con construction and say, hey, you guys are damaging my tree. So anyway, this is a potential way, you know, an extreme example perhaps, but one that certainly occurs in the urban environment and when we have big mature trees next to construction areas. But perhaps this is a way the homeowner could know whether their tree uh, is being affected by that work. And also just to learn to appreciate their tree, how is it, how it is performing and whether, uh, you know, uh, they're contributing to a larger understanding of trees or, or how much their tree is sequestering carbon, all of those kinds of things could kind of be built into this uh, idea. So on the next slide, uh, there's in a, just a couple of semesters, a, a team of four students were able to put together this kind of comprehen comprehensive vision of a tree Fitbit that could have a, a great applicability. <laughs> some reason I can't say that word today. Uh, anyway, the materials needed are relatively cheap and the work will be building upon the database of observations so that reliable predictions can be made. So, you know, the future directions are kind of looking at some kind of easy to use uh, sensor that people could use uh, widely uh, on a wide range of tree species and a wide range of conditions. So um, this idea I think is not too far away in the future and we could, pull something together over the next several years, I hope, and, and, and make this more widely available. Uh, so anyway, I think this is a very promising avenue of research and just kind of want to thank you all for your attention and to recognize the various sponsors of the National Science Foundation, the Morton Arboretum, like the Hamill Family Trust uh, Foundation has helped us a lot, University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, University Center Myers Co, and the Tree Fund for uh, their continued support of this research. This concludes Dr. Charles Cannon's talk on measuring a tree's pulse and its relationship to tree health. This talk was originally presented at the 2020 ISA Virtual Conference. The views and information expressed are those of the presenter. Please join us next month for another presentation in the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. Trees in every country, trees you know we can, work together and learn what